This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. Welcome, Tritons, to our webinar, Tritons Tackling the 2020 Presidential Election. I'm Jerry Milana, Chair of Chancellor's Associates and proud Marshall alumna, Class of 1986. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. We have a great lineup of speakers who will discuss the impact of current events on the upcoming presidential election. Today, you'll hear from the Dean of Social Sciences and UC San Diego alumna, Dr. Carol Padden, followed by a conversation between Thad Kauser, Chair of the Political Science Department, and Jose Gonzalez, Chancellor's Associate Scholar alumnus and member of the first graduating class of UC San Diego's Wortham School of Public Health. Slides, resources, and the recording will be emailed three to five business days after the event. Now, at any point during today's program, you can ask a question using the Q&A feature at the bottom of the screen. These questions will be answered during our live Q&A following the conversation. Now, please allow me to introduce Dr. Carol Padden, Dean of Social Sciences. Dean Padden is a MacArthur Genius Award-winning scholar of sign languages and holds the Sanford I. Berman Chair in Language and Human Communication. We're so thankful for her time here today. Please join me in a warm welcome for Dean Padden. Thank you, Jerry. Welcome to all of you from the Social Sciences at UC San Diego. It is my pleasure to introduce two speakers today, Professor Thad Kauser, a faculty member in the Political Science Department, who is also the department chair and Jose Gonzalez, a member of the first graduating undergraduate class in public health. They are here to talk about the upcoming national election in November of this year. And as you will see, they have a great deal to say. The election this fall will be critical for our democracy for many reasons. Most important of all will be how we will conduct an election for our next president in the context of a very serious public health crisis brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Kauser is one of our very best teachers. You may have had a class with him. He is also a leading commentator on the state of American politics. He has moderated local candidate forums as he did for the last mayoral election here in San Diego. You may have heard him on NPR. He's often quoted in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and of course, the San Diego Union Tribune. He is widely known for his accessible comments about what we might see ahead in state and national election. Jose Gonzalez graduated in June from UC San Diego with a major in public health. Last year, he was part of the University of California's UC slash DC program, which gives UC students an opportunity to work somewhere in the U.S. government while continuing their coursework here at UCSD. He was a general legislative intern for Senator Kamala Harris, one of our senators from the state of California. He brings the dual perspective on public health and national politics directly from Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. And now our, our speakers. Well, thank you so much, Dean Padden. Uh, and Jose, I'm really looking forward to talking about this election with you. So remembering back to, to the last presidential election, 2016. So you were, you were just starting college then. Now you've just graduated from, from UCSD. What felt different uh, then compared to now in, in sort of how aware you and, and your peers were of, of the stakes of this politics, how engaged everyone was, and, and what your views were going into November? So in terms of 2016, I think it was a very different time. I mean, I think a lot has changed in the last three years, four years now, because we have an election coming up. Um, but I remember a lot of my friends just being interested because we had a reality television star who uh, won the 
the election. But I just remember having some friends who were really not engaged in the political process and they did tell me, you know, I don't vote. I don't feel like it makes a difference. And I just thought that was a little discouraging just because I remember vividly registering to vote the day I turned 18 and I have continued to vote every time I have. Um, I had the chance to because I just think it's something that everyone needs to do and they need to be able to get involved in the political process because it is very important because that's ultimately how we make change in the republic that we live in. Yeah. Do you, and this year, do you even have to make that argument to your friends or is 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 everyone really engaged or is there still some of that reluctance right now? You know, I think that the conversation has shifted a little bit. I think there's more individuals who are engaged in the political process just because they understand what the stakes are. And I think it's very important. Um, so I, I, I do see and I foresee and I hope that there are some changes that occur this upcoming election just because I feel like there's so much going on right now. And I knew 2020 was going to be a big year just because I thought it was, you know, an election year. But with COVID-19 and everything that has been happening right now, um, it just added to that. So 2020 is definitely one to remember. And I'm just anxious to see what's going to happen this upcoming November um, because we do have a lot at stake. Um, how certain would you say that there's even going to be a presidential election this year, just given the current circumstances surrounding 2020? Yeah, with everything going on, that, that's a question I've been asked a lot. Like, are we even going to have an election in, in November? The short answer is we are going to have an election this November because the, the founders had thought about this. They they put in the place in the Constitution a rule saying Congress gets to make the rules uh, working with the states about the time, place, and manner of elections. They don't give the president the power to cancel or delay election because they were trying to stop a king from <laughs> from coming back and taking over the country. So, and Congress has taken that uh, uh, that power. They've set a law, um, and then we also have a few other rules. The Twentieth Amendment says there's going to be a new president and vice president on on January twentieth, and uh, the Presidential Succession Act of nineteen forty seven says that would be the sitting House uh, Speaker. So. In everyone's, in, uh, the, the president has a clear interest in holding this election in November, and Congress has the authority to do it. But we may not have a winner in November. We may not have a clear winner. It's increasingly likely that we won't have a clear winner on election night. Because one of the things that's happened is people want to cast their ballots by mail because of the pandemic. And so you have a lot of those returns are going to come in late. They're going to come in a day late. They're going to come in one or two weeks before all the votes are counted. And so if you have one person who's leading in the early returns on election night, but a change in those votes over the next few weeks, that could be a recipe for the election meltdown that a lot of legal scholars are worried about. And we might be back right where we were in 2000 with Bush v. Gore, a Supreme Court decision deciding who the next president is based on trying to in interpret uh, all, all of these votes. And that's that's something that that, that may make uh, that may string this election out for a while. Um, speaking of the pandemic and, and and also the racial justice movement that followed very fast on its heels that that your generation has been absolutely uh, taking the lead in. What have you seen and how do you think everything that's happened in, in the streets and in conversations in classrooms and, and, and on social media, how do you think that is going to play out in the electoral politics of 2020? Well, I wish I knew. But what I think was going to happen, you know, I really, really like what I'm seeing with a lot of engagement. You know, there's a lot of unrest and a lot of people are coming together, utilizing their right to protest the inequities that we're seeing within our nation. And it's really encouraging to see that. But at the same time, it's a little sad seeing what is happening during one of the worst pandemics in modern history. Um, I'm 100% for individuals gathering and protesting, you know, police brutality and what's going on right now. But it can be challenging seeing the pictures of individuals who are protesting because I recognize that we are living in unprecedented times right now with COVID-19. Um, the conversation can go into a lot of health inequities and a lot of injustices that plague a lot of underserved communities. And it can be challenging because right now what we are seeing are health disparities magnified because we are seeing disproportionate individuals who are affected by COVID-19 are marginalized and ethnic minorities. So I think the conversation now is going to be shifting to 
the importance of a good public health infrastructure because we have seen firsthand how daily life has been disrupted because of COVID-19. In terms of what's going to happen and how this is going to play into the election, like I said earlier, I just hope this gets more people involved in the political process because that's ultimately how we're going to make changes occur um, is by voting. So if we can get individuals to engage in that process, uh, I think it's it, it, it's it's going to be something encouraging to see this upcoming November because this election year, I think, is going to be a lot different than any other election we've had recently, just given everything going on right now. Um, speaking of that, so how are we even going to hold an election during a pandemic? Um, do you think voters would be able to even cast their uh, ballots? And is it going to be safe? What do you think about that? Yeah, this is something that state and local county registrars have been looking at since the moment the pandemic began. And it's something that at UCSD, we've been actually doing research on uh, to try to track what voters want, how they feel would feel safe or, or wouldn't feel safe casting their ballot. So we've put in place two polls uh, at the national level, both in one in April, and then we updated that in June. And we've also done a major statewide poll of 12,000 respondents in California. And, and what we found is this. We found that more people than ever want to cast a boat by mail. So, uh, so in California, that's over 70% nationally. It's about, about half of people. Their first preference is to, to cast a ballot by mail. Uh, and, and then if you look at what they say about, well, would you feel comfortable waiting in line at a polling place without any social distancing measures? Most people right now would not feel comfortable, especially after some of them we expo- we, we let, had them read pro- scientific projections uh, about COVID-19 showing that there, you know, there might be a, a peak in the fall. But then when you say, well, what if that polling place had a set of, of social distancing measures in, in place? Voters become a lot more comfortable with that. And so I think what that shows is, is that uh, a different approach to elections that may, instead of voting uh, in our neighbor's garage, maybe if we're going to be voting right now, the governor in California and, and county registrars are working together on a plan that says maybe there are going to be fewer precincts, uh, fewer polling places but bigger ones that can put in place more social distancing measures. So you'd be going to a school auditorium, having space between people, uh, being able to vote early, three days early, 10 days early, spacing out that time of voting, spacing out that physical distance will make voters feel more comfortable. Um, The kind of, the, the biggest question in all of this though is how do we fit these new ways of running an election in with the political polarization that's only been growing and growing in California? California has had a lot of experience with voting by mail and and Republicans as well as Democrats use it. And right now, Democrats and Republicans are equally supportive of voting by mail personally in California. But if you look across the nation where people don't have that experience and where you've seen political leaders, namely the president, casting doubts upon uh, the integrity of the voting by mail process, um, doubts that, that really aren't supported by any evidence, what you see is this partisan split that's emerging. So it's about almost 10 percentage points difference between the rate the Republicans, Democrats favored voting by mail and Republicans favored voting by mail when we looked at this in April. Now, after another two months and, and really much more political rhetoric about that, now that partisan gap has become a gulf. It's about 20 percentage points. Democrats and independents are more supportive of voting by mail than Republicans. And, and when you give people information about the COVID crisis, that gap gets even bigger because Democrats and independents are influenced by those scientific projections. Republicans don't change their mind right now when they hear those projections. So that is all part of what spells this, this recipe potentially for, for a big partisan split and a big partisan fight, not just over the results of the November election, but over how the, whether those results uh, can be trusted and whether we can be confident in them. One one thing that that I wanted to get back to you about is 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 we've seen a huge amount of the the, the social political protests uh, over uh, over racial equity in, in America that's played out on the streets in in, Cal, in San Diego and in California and nationally and across the world, but it's also a place that played out in social media, and and that's where uh, where many young voters spend a huge amount of their time. So what are you seeing in social media? What kind of what kind of messages are you seeing? I don't know if you're if you're on it much, but but what are you seeing in social media, and how do you think that's going to play out in November? 
So I'm going to be very honest with you. I just recently deleted my Facebook <laughs> just because I think, you know, it's um, it's a good area to get a lot of misinformation. And I think you definitely have to be able to vet all the information you get. I personally like challenging my own bias. So I like getting my news from different sources, whether they be um, conservative sources or, you know, more centrist leaning. Uh, I think it's important to just get multiple viewpoints because we could ultimately say, you know, if someone is very radical, radical and right-leaning the same applies to an individual if they're very radical left-leaning so i think it's very important to get a consensus and to come together and to be able to have an open dialogue and conversation with someone who may not share the same viewpoint as you um with that being said back to your question and what i've seen in social media so when i was on facebook i just thought you know it's just an area where a lot of people come to argue I, i i would not say that individuals can have logical thought out conversations on the comment sections of a news source per per se right so i think it's really it's really unfortunate because you get a lot of misinformation spreading so it, it social media can be a very powerful tool um but it just depends on how it's going to be used, right? If that tool is going to be used for misinformation and for spreading information that hasn't been vetted, that isn't correct, it's just you're getting wrong information to a majority of individuals nationwide, globally, one could argue. And that, I think, does play a role in the outcomes of certain things. Um, the 2016 election, there was meddling that occurred on that. And one of the question, um, one of the things that could also be a conversation is how social media played into that. During my time in D.C., I had to write a paper about impeachment. And in some of my research that I had compiled, um, I I looked into the Bill Clinton impeachment in the 90s. And the article that I was reading basically highlighted how there was a lot of factors that came together that basically made that happen. Um, One of the biggest things was the media. There was media coverage of the Bill Clinton scandal that had occurred, and they were just completely reporting on that 24-7 nonstop. And what this author was arguing was how that influenced the result of the impeachment uh, when that had occurred. So I just thought it was interesting hearing that because, you know, we didn't have social media back in the 90s when that was occurring, but we see how the media played into that outcome, right? So I think now we have things like social media and that we saw how misinformation could spread in 2016. Um, And I think the same applies now, you know, in 2020, there's a lot of things and a lot of information that can spread rapidly on Facebook. So um, it's important to monitor that because if we're not getting, if if that right information isn't getting to individuals, are they ultimately going to be able to make a choice at the ballot box, right? When they're, when they're poll, when they're um, voting, um, so it, it can be challenging. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I anticipate some changes occurring, you know, so 2016 does not happen again. With the last election and how we saw everything that was occurring, do you think anything different is going to occur in 2020 now that we have social media and we have, um, how do I say, these, these platforms where individuals, regardless of the pol- political affiliation or their their view, can come and um, spread their information. What do you think about that? How do you think social media is going to play into what we're going to see this year? Yeah, I mean, I think these these platforms are, are increasingly prominent. Uh, and, and really, 2016 was the Twitter election, right? That was the one that, that, that launched the, uh, the, the, the prominence of this, this direct communication straight from one candidate to 80 million followers, right? And bypass the traditional media that there was often a filter, right? And and you see, you see a president who's very unfiltered on, on Twitter right now. Um, now it's interesting. A lot of the themes you brought out in, in your observations of social media really back are, are, are what we see in, in the work that we've been using, doing using big data tools to look at, at politicians on, on social media. So I've been working with UC San Diego graduate students and undergraduates to, to basically we downloaded starting in, in the summer 2015, all the tweets of all the candidates and all the super PACs throughout the presidential election and, and, and have kept doing it since then. One of the questions we've been looking at is, what are we getting out of this? So are we getting objective facts or are we getting subjective opinion? Right. What what are candidates supplying? Uh, and, and what we found out is, is, is clearly candidates are supplying 
opinion rather than facts. So, so uh, about 70% of, of the tweets that, uh, that the candidates are sending, it, you know, are not at all objective factual statements. Even the, the uh, factual claims, about half of the ones that have been fact-checked by fact-checking organizations are wrong. So it's not the place to go for objective information, but you do really get to know what candidates think, where they stand, who they love, who they hate, what they're, what they're for, um, which I think is, is an important thing when you're electing people to instill their values. And it's also this: what they're supplying is what voters are demanding. So if you look at what people like, on Twitter, right? What they respond to for every single candidate, for Donald Trump's audience, but also for Hillary Clinton's audience and Bernie Sanders' audience, you know, what people are responding to are the opinions, especially the ones that are strongly negative or strongly positive. So we want that argument, right? We want <laughs> those ideas, not, not dry facts from social media right now. And politicians really are, are giving us what we want uh, for, for, for better or, or quite likely uh, for worse. We were taking a tour of the National Archives back in D.C. One of the things that our tour guide told us was the challenge that they're having right now with archiving all of the tweets that the president has been putting out. Because it used to be that we didn't have Twitter, right? And how now that is the norm of how politicians, our president, are able to communicate with individuals. And one of the things they said is trying to figure out how to archive all this because the job of the National Archives is to, you know, archive everything and to have an archive of our nation's history. So it's interesting to see how they're going to go about doing that, because I know that the president has put out a lot of tweets and there are a lot of conversations that have occurred on Twitter. And one has to think, well, how is that going to get recorded? Because we need to have that for our history. And right. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is these are these have replaced the press release and in many ways the stump speech. And and they are the the, the main way that people were consuming and learning from a campaign. So since, since you talked about UC and I know you did UCDC, which is the, the great program that's going to be it's going to be virtual this summer and this fall. And we're, and we're hoping to bring it back in person. But but correct me if I'm wrong. I think you worked for Senator Kamala Harris. She's obviously on the short list right now and really at the top of, of Joe Biden's short list for, for potential uh, vice presidential candidates. What, what did what did you learn from that time working for her? Do you think and, and do you think you, you do you expect to see her on the on the ticket nationally? I don't know, to be honest with you. I did learn a lot. I, I got to meet her once. I have to be honest and tell you that. But, you know, I have to be very explicit in stating that I do not speak on behalf of the senator and I do not represent the office whatsoever. But, you know, during my time in D.C. and on the Hill, I did learn a lot. And, you know, I think, you know, there is a lot of conversations about a potential VP pick for her. But uh, I have to be honest with you and tell you, you know, my professor that I was taking during my time in D.C., he had a 38-year career on the Hill, the last eight of which he was the chief of staff for Speaker Pelosi. So I was a little intimidated because I figured, you know, he knows what he's talking about, right? And I did have a conversation with him and I was telling him, you know, a lot of people are talking about a potential VP pick for uh, Kamala Harris. And he said, you know, I don't see her being a vice president. I see her maybe being a um, Supreme Court justice nominee. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, my professor has a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge of how that political arena works. So I'm curious to see what will happen because that was that was what he told me. And I think this big conversation is going on right now about her being the next VP pick. But I'm curious to see if what he told me is going to actually happen. <laughs> yeah, Supreme Court probably wouldn't be too bad for her either. So, well, that's great that you got that excellent experience. And thanks so much for, for, for sharing your thoughts. And now I think it's probably about time now to turn it over to, uh, to our uh, Alumni and Chancellor's Associate audience for some questions. Awesome. Thanks so much for this exchange, Thad and Jose. Um, I'm Jenny Van Meter, Muir Class of 1990, Director of Alumni Engagement and Strategy. I'm really honored to be here with you to continue this conversation with our live audience. Audience, before we kick off the Q&A, we want to do the, the two quick polls that match the ones Thad reviewed in the presentation. Um, as we pull these up, Thad and Jose are going to give us a little bit more context, and then we'll take a look at the results. Poll one, in the upcoming November 3rd election, if you had the ability to cast a ballot in any way you wished, what would be your most preferred way to cast a ballot by mail or in person? Thad, 
Tell us a little bit more about um, this question and the national surveys. You kind of reviewed it in your presentation, but give us a little more context. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. This is one of the questions. Both of these questions are ones that we've asked of uh, nationally diverse samples and also a large sample in California. And so I'm curious to see how our alumni and chancellor's associates answer these questions. And, and in particular, one of the things that I didn't get through in the main presentation is to talk how talk about how different groups of people answer this question differently and what implications that might have for running an election that includes all groups of Californians and, and Americans. Great, and it looks like we have uh, our results. 86% by mail and 14% in person. Yeah, so I think that is, that's much higher than the way that even Californians uh, answered this in April. So about 70% of Californians wanted to cast a ballot by mail in April. But I think one of the things that's changed is the health situation has changed. And so that could be one explanation of the greater support in this. Also, one of the clear dynamics that we saw is the age of respondents uh, really changes how they answer this question. So as you look, move from 18 to 24 year olds all the way up to 65 and over voters at every single age group, you see more and more people wanting to cast a ballot by mail. And and so that is that's something that when you talk about youth turnout, figuring out ways that will allow both young voters and old voters to participate, you may want to have different modes of voting, different options, two different options, both in-person options for those who want it and vote by mail options for those who want it in order to include everyone in this election. Fantastic. Okay, so let's get to poll two in the upcoming November 3rd election. Would you be willing to serve as a poll worker if the polling place was reconfigured to adhere to social distancing protocol? That's like additional space between voting booths, poll workers, and voters standing in line, and to take other measures to protect the public's health. Um, answer yes or no. And um, Jose, have you ever worked at a polling location and would you do it uh, this year? Uh, I have not, but I would totally not be opposed to working in a polling location if the uh, proper protocol was in place to ensure the safety of the individuals coming in to cast their vote and for the workers. Um, I think if we're able to do those things to protect the health of everyone, um, it's just a way of mitigating risk. And if we're able to mitigate risk, then I wouldn't be opposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thad, are we seeing our results on this? poll. There it is. So we've got 36% yes, 64% no. Yeah. So I think that that shows that that highlights one of the challenges that local registrars like Mike Vu in, in San Diego are facing, right? Because we rely on on a lot of people, uh, not not permanent employees of the county, but just people who are willing to do it and, and committed to democracy to work that really hard long day to work in a polling place. And right now what they're hearing is that many, pe many fewer people than, than in, in normal times are willing to do that. And so they have this dual challenge of, of trying to run an election where people want to vote in different ways, but also their workforce is changing. And that makes, that makes life really hard uh, for, for, for registrars trying to run a, uh, an inclusive election. Exactly. Um, okay, so now that we have a feel for our audience, let's get to some questions. Um, Let's see, from our audience, we've got one. Thad, have you or your colleagues cracked the door open on the concept of America 2.0 if the election throws us in to a constitutional turmoil? Um, reflecting on a, a recent performance on the show The Politician, where Gwyneth Paltrow's character advocates for being its own nation state. Okay, so I guess I'm behind in, in, in my TV streaming on that show, uh, and so I'm not too familiar what, what, what America 2.0 is. There was a lot of talk after the last election about California becoming its own nation state, uh, the Cal Exit Program, and that was extremely far-fetched because it takes, uh, you know, the, the rest of the nation wouldn't want to let us go. And, and if they, and if they did, California as an independent nation, uh, would, would have a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, and so I think this idea, uh, this sort of cataclysmic idea that our institutions are not going to be able to, uh, to handle, uh, an election controversy. I think right now, 
I'm an optimist. I think we are going to be able to stay together as a nation through a controversial election, right? That we have a judicial system and that judicial system is clearly going to play a role. Uh, it's already, this is already the most litigated election that we've seen. And that's, we're only going to see more and more cases, but I think we have a strong system of checks and balances, a strong system of institutions and, and a strong legal system and, and, and belief in the rule of law that we are going to be able to find a, a peaceful transition transition, but it is going to be not without controversy. Um, but, but, I, but I have every hope that we'll stay together as a nation. So this one's from one of our educators, an educator at the university level in the natural sciences, asking, how do I educate my students about the issues and encourage them to be involved without becoming too political? Um, she also, uh, this person also says, I do feel that we need to keep science education as apolitical as reasonably possible. You know, Jose, since you were in the public health, do you want to take a program? Do you want to take a shot at that? Um, well, I, you know, I think as a student, it's very important to get, um, like I said, during our conversation, getting multiple viewpoints, you know, because as America, we are extremely diverse. And that is one of our strengths, right? If we all thought the same, it would be, um, it would be very boring. So in terms of how to stay apolitical, I, you know, I think engaging with individuals who may have a different viewpoint than your own is extremely important because it adds a different dimension and another layer to students and their education when they're in the classroom setting. Um, it, it's a it's a excellent opportunity to have a dialogue and to have a conversation and to be able to um, interact with um, get the students to interact with each other. So I, I you know I think it's incredibly important to remain respectful. Um, I was always taught you treat others the way you want to be treated. So if I want to have a conversation with an individual who has a different political ideology than I do, my hope is that as long as I'm respecting them. And listening to them, because that is a very important skill, listening, um, my hope is that they will return that when it's my turn to talk. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my my perspective. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, diversity, as, as Jose has said, is, is one of UCSD's strengths. And one of our important sources of diversity is we have students with a lot of different ideological and political perspectives. And, and one of the things that we do in our department is, is teach them to teach, you know, by modeling that and by teaching them how to respect each other's uh, statements and, and how to bring data into conversations and how to have reasoned arguments. That's one of the best things we can teach them. So I don't think being apolitical means you need to shy away from all the policy controversies that, that are rife in the world. I think we need to get practice in engaging in those policies in a, in a respectful way. One of the things we often do in our department is we have uh, simulations where, you know, I did one with California politics students where at the end of the year, students played uh, the role of sen state senators. Some were Republicans, some were Democrats. We do a congressional simulation, same thing. And when you have to put yourself in the mindset of someone who's potentially from a different party as you, that gives you a chance uh, to, to see the world through their perspectives. And, and that's part of the education we can bring to, to hopefully decrease polarization in the future. Thanks so much. Um Here's one about the polls. So how much can we rely on the accuracy of the national polls that we're seeing now? What are they really telling us in advance of the election? Yeah, that's a great question because so much of the coverage going into the 2016 presidential election was that was it the polls, and if you put together all the polls, there was a uh, a sense that there was a you know about a 66 percent chance that Hillary Clinton would win, and she lost. Right. So what went wrong uh, in that polling, uh, and and can we trust polls again? So so a few short answers to that one. At the national level, polls were not that far off. So polls had Hillary Clinton with about a 4% lead nationally, and I believe she won by about two percentage points. Uh, it was just that polls didn't focus enough on, on the state-by-state -state election. That's how we elect presidents. It's not a national popular vote. It's an electoral college vote. We didn't have enough polling in the key battleground states. Second thing was polls really underestimated uh, the number of, uh, of especially white voters without college educations who were going to turn out and get to get engaged. And they were engaged by President Trump and brought out to a much higher level than in the 2012 election. 
Pollsters are not making that mistake this time. They are they are including many more uh, people from that demographic, uh, saying that and recognizing that this is an electorate that the people on the left and the right are both highly engaged on, and and we're, we're likely going to going to set turnout records again in 2020. And polls are bringing in that new mix of people. So there's confidence that that pollsters have have learned some of the mistakes before. But I would say again, that the biggest lesson that we learn is is that uh, is that it's it's not over until every vote is cast and every vote is counted. And that's why you know holding an inclusive election is is the most important thing we should be focusing our attention on now. What is your response to someone saying they don't want to vote in this election? because they don't like either candidate. We know that that was a factor that came up in the last election. What about that going into this one? Yeah, no, I, I think it, it would be an excellent opportunity to engage with them and just to let them know and maybe try to explain to them how voting is a privilege and we shouldn't take that for granted. I think oftentimes um, individuals are not aware of the history that went into allowing us to vote and I think it's something that's very, very special. And as Americans, it's something that we were able to do. It's how we uh, voice our concerns. It's how we we drive change. So I personally think I would take that as an opportunity to try to engage with them and to try to explain to them the importance of actually being involved in the political process, because that's ultimately how we make changes occur here in um, the USA. Yeah. I mean, I would abs- I absolutely understand why why people may not think that these two people of, oh, out of everyone in America, why are these the our only two choices? And, and they may not think that these are the, the, the two perfect candidates. And certainly after each of these candidates face about a billion dollars or so in negative advertising over the course of this election, which will likely happen. Uh, I, I think the, these may these may be two of the least popular people in America. Uh, but the short answer is one of them will be president. And each of them would take the nation in a very different direction. And so my pitch to someone who, who wouldn't want to be engaged is, is that we're all going to be governed by our collective choice. And, you know, as Jose said, it's a privilege. It's not something that people in every nation have. It's not something that everyone throughout American history has had. And, and there have been, you know, very, you know, very brutal fights for the franchise. Uh, and, and this is your opportunity to shape your country for the next four years. Veering into comparative politics, um, (laughs) have other countries with vote by mail options held elections recently or during the pandemic? Uh, Is there anything we can learn from these experiences that will inform our approach in November? If not, is there anything we've learned from the primaries that we've seen in the U.S. that are going to help us get some insights? So I think we can look around at other states. So I'm, I do comparative state politics. Now, there are also some other countries that make but make some limited use of, of voting by mail, but the United States and especially Western states have been, elite, have been leaders in this. So Oregon has done this, uh, you know, in every statewide election since the, the mid-1990s. Washington, Utah, there, there are plenty of other states that have moved to, uh, to entirely vote by mail elections, and, and then, which is, isn't on the horizon for, for 2020, but there are lots of states like California that have made good use of it. What we've learned is this: that that moving to vote by mail uh, doesn't really hasn't really changed the nature of of the electorate. So if you look at places that have used it in the past. We haven't seen any part any patterns of uh, a, a partisan bias, so it hasn't helped or hurt one party or or the other, and and it also hasn't led to to any big dramatic increase uh, in fraud. So there was there has been a recent high, highly publicized case of, of fraud in Patterson, New Jersey. But that was fraud that was caught because of the many safeguards in place by absentee ballots, right? You have to sign them. They check your signature against your voter signature. And if you send multiple ballots in, you're, you're caught. And that's exactly how they caught those people in Patterson. So I think what we've learned is, is it can be done, but it leads, but you need to have patience, right? These ballots, many of them in many states only have to be put in the mail by election day. So it takes a while to get them. It takes a while to count them. And, and that process, which again is a very highly scrutinized process where you can have people from, from both sides of the party aisle overseeing that process to make sure that it's fair, that process is reliable. It just takes our patience. And so the biggest thing that we've learned from, from other states and, and other elections in California that have been run with, with this hybrid of through the mail and in-person voting options is we're going to have to be patient and wait. And that's going to be the most important uh, thing going into this November election. 
VP Biden has stated that he wants a VP running mate who is not intimidated by the White House and the magnitude of the VP job. That's oh, this person suggests a, a big vote for Susan Rice. <laughs> but uh, what are your thoughts about the VP pick? And Jose, you want to take a crack at this one to start? Like I said, um, I don't know. So my understanding, you know, with VP, there, there's a lot of individuals and a lot of candidates that are in the running right now. And there's, you know, there's a lot of speculation on who it's going to be, right? And I, I think ultimately time is going to tell. I think the nation has evolved in the last four years and so much has occurred. And that's just um, kind of, it has set the foundation for what's going to come this election um, cycle. So in terms of a VP, I would love to see a, a female 100% um, because I think that's just a testament to how much we've evolved and how far we've come. But uh, I really don't know what, what will happen. Maybe Professor Thad can shine a light on that. <laughs> One other thing that's come up is the Supreme Court's uh, involvement in all this. Um, can you elaborate, Thad, on your comment that this election might be decided by the Supreme Court? Um, would this be based on a close electoral outcome, uh, you know, part of that faithless elector thing that we've been hearing about? Or are you thinking more that there will be challenges to the legitimacy of a mail-in election, or is it something else altogether? Yeah, so there are going to be challenges to, to, and there have already been challenges to many parts of the way uh, that the election is, is run. These are all decisions made at, at the state level. Uh, and so states like Wisconsin, where the Supreme Court uh, recently allowed, um, allowed a, a Wisconsin law to stand that, 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 in the, that in some people's mind restricted the franchise and, and suppressed votes uh, by, by certain groups, right? That was some, that's one place where the Supreme Court has already weighed in. Uh, you have, there may be challenges to states that allow voting by mail based on a new legal theory uh, that, 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 some, that, that the Republican National Committee in some ways uh, has, has pushed. So that's a, there's going to be a novel legal theory that might draw the Supreme Court. Uh, and that novel political theory is that, um, that expanding, the fran- expanding voting options, can de- if, they le- if that leads to fraud, can dilute the vote of others. And so that is an unproven legal theory, but that might bring the, the support, Supreme Court into it. And we might, uh, and another big area, it looks at felon disfranchisement. So the state of Florida passed uh, a, a ballot initiative that that, franchised, that re-enfranchised about nearly a million felons. Uh, that's a state where elections could be very close and felons might vote in different ways uh, than others. You know, past felons, the legislature has passed a law that would make it harder for re-enfranchisement to occur. And that has faced a, a legal challenge that, again, the Supreme Court may be drawn into. So the Supreme Court could could take a role before the election that would change who votes in the election. But another role that the Supreme Court could play is if there are, if we see a very close electoral college vote that like 2000 comes down to one or two states with a very small margin, if there is a challenge to the process of, uh, of counting absentee ballots or even, or counting polling place ballots, either side might mount that challenge if you have a super close election, uh, this may be, um, you may have a court challenge that winds up with the Supremes. There have been a few questions coming through about the possibility of Donald Trump losing the election, but finding either a loophole or, or not stepping down. So um, one person referenced an opinion piece in Newsweek that asserted that um, President Trump could maintain the presidency by indicating that the outcome was the result of foreign interference and invoking emergency powers to investigate alleged activity in swing states. So what is the likelihood that a scenario of this kind could happen with uh, President Trump refusing to leave office or finding a way to stay in office? Jose, do you want to? I just want to. I I I would start off by saying I I um I did read an article piece. I maybe it's the the piece that this individual is referencing where it was talking about how he could potentially say that um there was fraud occurring in the election, and then he he will invoke a very obscure law that has never been invoked before, and it would ultimately cause, um, I believe what Professor Kauser was saying, you know, the Supreme Court to come in to handle the election. So th- there's a lot of hypothetical situations and it's, um, it's interesting, but uh, I think time will tell, right? You know, if, 
there's so many layers to this conversation and so many um, factors that are going to play into the election in November. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if we, uh, we saw something like that occur in November, but I, I, I just have to hope and be optimistic that our checks and balances are going to have the ability to play and function the way they were designed to, to ensure that one balances and checks the other because it's, um, it would be discouraging if that process was not honored because it's been in use for so long. Yeah, I mean, the United States, going back to George Washington, right, has this cherished tradition of, of peaceful transitions of power, right? That is part of what makes us uh, the stable democracy that we are. And while there are elections in which people on both sides of the aisle at the end of an election have said, you know what, I think I, I really should have won that election. I, you know, I challenge the legitimacy of that. We haven't seen someone, uh, once the courts have ruled we haven't seen uh, any branch of government uh, in, 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 in these situations um, overturn what, uh, what American political institutions have decided is the final outcome. And so I think it's, it's incumbent on all of us to, to respect those institutions. You know, it was a big step when, when Democrats in 2000 respected the, uh, the results of the election and, and a Bush v. Gore decision that, that went against many Democrats' interests. And I think, you know, we need to be committed, even though we may ha we all have our, our partisan sides that we're cheerleading for in one election. At the end of the day, being committed to, uh, to the legitimacy of our governing institutions, working through the traditional governing process and the checks and balance systems, as Jose brought out, and respecting that, that ultimate, ultimate outcome, that is what will, will maintain this cherished tradition of, of peaceful transitions in America. Great. That's nice to hear. <laughs> Um, so we've had a few questions and comments coming through. We have a, a parent of a, a student who's going to be joining UC San Diego this fall, uh, expressing appreciation for uh, this conversation and also asking, um, you know, does UC San Diego allow speakers from various viewpoints on campus? Um, and how do uh, classes on campus really um, nurture this kind of uh, sharing of ideas and opinions? You know, for the student perspective, I I can honestly say I feel like UC UC DC UCSD is very um it's a very respectful institution. I mean, I've had individuals in some of my other classes that do have different political ideologies than I do, and I have found that I can have and entertain these conversations because it is a safe environment where you're able to share and have this dialogue with other individuals who may think differently than you do. Um, honestly, I. I, I was a transfer student, so I was only at UCSD for two years. And in those two years, I don't remember any event being canceled because um, the individual or the speaker that wanted to present was um, not lined up with a specific uh, political ideology. So I, I, I couldn't comment on that because I don't remember ever seeing anything like that in my time at UCSD. Yes, I think that, that, that that's great to hear. And that, that's a great question that allows us to, to really be clear that UCSD, you know, which it, it, especially as a public university, we have a responsibility to present diverse viewpoints to students. And, and we take that very seriously. So the beginning of many of our classes, we invite local campaigns in to make pitch for interns. And we have absolutely, we have members of both parties. In fact, I would say over, over time in one of the classes that I've taught, we've had more Republican campaigns than Democrat than Democratic campaigns come and take advantage of that. Um, we hold, we often hold debates and can't, well, sorry, candidate forums uh, to, to allow candidates to address issues. For instance, we'll be doing one in the San Diego mayor's race uh, for uh, on Thursday, October 8th. And, and in all of those, you know, we, we, we present the, the, the full set of, of views. It's, um, and there have been prominent right-wing speakers who have come to campus uh, and, and had, you know, respectful audiences at UCSD. When we do big election night parties, as we do most years, we have the Young Democrats and the Young Republicans involved in panels. And that's part of what makes us an educational facility, right? We want to educate people and we want to expose people to, to, to viewpoints that, that challenge challenge their own and, and, and allow them to, uh, to, to see the world as it is. This is kind of a compelling one. During the primaries, Pete Buttigieg made the offhand comment, comment that Barack Obama was the last of the Reagan-style presidents and labeled Donald Trump as a transition figure. 
Yeah, no, I think everyone is definitely entitled to have their own opinion. And if Pete Buttigieg said that, I, you know, there's no reason why that shouldn't be um, entertained or talked about, right, Professor Kauser? Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to, I, I missed that comment, trying to figure out some of the parallels between uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and, okay, here we go. And we're seeing the full, uh, in the chat, the full question. Um, is there any kind of robust thinking on stylistic periods in U.S. politics, and are, are we in transition? Um, so there, there, there is a large school uh, of, of political science that, that, that sort of held sway until about 30 years ago about the eras of American politics uh, that went in these 30 to 40 year cycles and what sort of era that we're in. The era that we're clearly in right now is, is the era of partisan polarization. Right. So if you look at the difference between um, difference in presidential approval between a president's own party's members and the and and the other party's members, you see that gap growing, growing. And it started growing uh, really with with the with the Reagan presidency jumped up with Clinton. But it but it has grown ever since. Um, I think what we're what we may see. Uh, in, as a reaction to that, I think we've we've reached about the ultimate mathematical limits of those differences in, in approval ratings and those levels of partisan polarization. And I think that that many candidates uh, are seeing that a route to success and 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 Pete Buttigieg was was taking this route is not just in mobilizing your own base, getting your own people riled up by taking more ever more extreme positions, but by finding the common ground towards the center. And and I think that will be a clear recipe for success. And if sort of Donald Trump, who has also been, you know, someone who has ha- has been a polarizing figure, if there's a transition away from him, that will be a transition to more centrist political figures who try to make broader appeals. Well, fantastic. We really appreciate you joining us today for this um, conversation that's really preparing us for November and looking ahead. And want to thank also our other participants, Dean Carroll Patton and Jerry Milana for their participation as well. Jose, uh, you're a new grad. We want to welcome you to the alumni family and we um, hope you'll stay involved with us in many ways and we'll see you out on the campaign trail. Um, (laughs) Additional thanks to our audience for joining us for today's webinar. Thank you again so much for your participation. We look forward to connecting with you soon. Go Tritons!